Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hayne. It's January 18th, 2018, and on this week's show, a preview of this year's Sundance Film Festival, which kicks off tonight, Kodak's big gamble on a new version of old tech, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hello, welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films, but when you hear this, we'll be en route to Park City, Utah, for the 34th Sundance Film Festival. As I mentioned when Sundance's features were first announced, this year's fest will screen 110 features from 3,900 and exactly one submissions. We've since learned that the number of selected shorts is 69 out of a whopping, oh my god, 8,740 submissions. The shorts filmmakers are particularly fortunate as Sundance also selects several of these festival films to screen as part of a traveling program of shorts at 75 theaters in the U.S. and Canada throughout the year. So since we first talked about this year's fest, Sundance has also announced its jurors, which is always a really interesting pool, and I think even more so this year. There are 24 jurors overall split up by festival section to give out a total of 28 awards. And unlike at many other festivals, these judges are very diverse in terms of both personal and professional backgrounds. For example, some of the interesting choices this year, I think, are Chaz Ebert, the late Roger Ebert's wife, who also is head of his review site and production company. DP Rachel Morrison, who we recently interviewed about her work on Mudbound and who this year will be the first woman to DP a blockbuster superhero film for Black Panther. Can-winning director Ruben Osland, who we had on the podcast this year for his latest film, The Square. Comic book artist Chris Ware. And RuPaul Charles, whose groundbreaking reality show RuPaul's Drag Race will have a 10-year retrospective screening at this year's festival. Are they going to show every single episode? I'm not sure. That would be an awfully long uh, screening. Just like a three-day-long dra- drag race? Well, people could dip in and out. Ew. She took it there. <laughs> anyway, so Sundance reported that last year's festival drew 71,638 attendees, which is pretty dang remarkable considering it all happens in a tiny little ski town. If you remember from last year when we talked about it, there's only one main street with only one proper theater on it. So the screenings are spread all over the place, with some even happening in Salt Lake City more than an hour away. One thing that surprised me this year is that they've actually expanded the New Frontier section into three venues. We've noticed and reported on sort of a waning interest in new media projects. But Sundance is banking on a different outcome, with a larger selection of projects, including virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, and even artificial intelligence. Even if you're not interested in VR, last year's VR lounge was like so poorly run. Like, there was only one thing I wanted to see. My friend had told me to see this thing, and I had tickets to see the thing. And like, every time I tried to see it, there was a big line, and they were like, go see this other thing. Like, it's... Even if it's less interesting than it was before, three venues is kind of necessary to get anybody through it because it's not like you can put 300 people in one headset at once. I mean, I think every festival that we talk about that has a VR section, we discuss these same like exhibition issues. So maybe this is the way they worked it out. I'm going to check it out. I'll let you guys know. Um Another new thing this year, by the way, at least for no film school, is that in addition to me, John, and the lovely Oakley Anderson Moore, No Film School Managing Editor Eric Lures will be joining us on the ground. And 
Thus, we have invited him to join us for this segment as well. Eric, hi. Hi, how's it going? Good. Very excited for my first Sundance experience. I have the boots, the uh, Tylenol, the coat, the scarves. I have it all, I feel. You have snacks? Oh, God, I forgot the snacks. We'll buy snacks. Okay. We'll get group snacks. Okay, good. Um, so you dug up something about a new venue uh, this year too, right? Right. Uh, if you're headed to Sundance and are frantically putting together your schedule at the very last minute, you may have noticed a few new additions and name changes to this year's screening venues. Uh, for example, what exactly is The Ray, which is the site of this year's New Frontier section? Named neither for New York's own esteemed Ray's Pizza nor for <laughs> famous Goodfellas star Ray Liotta, the Ray has been transformed from a former Sports Authority department store into a 500-seat theater in lower-level VR space. That's a shame. What, you're, you're lamenting the lack of a Sports Authority? Yes. Well, you know, it's the perfect location in the heart of Park City, Sundance Institute's managing director Betsy Wallace told the Salt Lake Tribune earlier this month. I had seen that spot free up for quite a while, and I said, I think it's time to put a stake in the ground with a new theater. That spot is a 25,000-square-foot space in a shopping area on Park City's Park Avenue. Okay, P.S., like, the most striking thing to me about this story is that there was a 25,000-square-foot sports authority. What? Is that big or small for a sports authority? It seems pretty big. Pretty, there's a lot of Utah Jazz jerseys, T-shirts, I'm sure, that are now gone. Well, I mean, let, let, let's be clear. This is Sundance. So there's probably, like, that sports authority probably did bang-up business in, like, undergarment, like, you know. Oh, skis and ski shit. Ski stuff, yeah. long underwear for people who didn't bring layers, like those little heat packs for your thing, like, that you put in your shoes. Like, this is a ski store that went under. That's, like, really big, though. Really? Anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's like the size of like a small movie studio, uh, like a lot, you know. Anyway. And in other Sundance venue news, there's been a name change for a familiar Sundance venue. Uh, across from that Fresh Market parking lot uh, will be the Park Avenue Theater, which is the 295-seat space formerly known as the Yarrow. Uh, the hotel changed names to the Doubletree by Hilton a couple of years ago. But old-timers will always know it as the Yarrow, just as the Fresh Market will always be Albertsons. Make sure to note these name changes and don't get lost on your stay. That's actually really helpful. And for those of you that have no idea what we're talking about, as I mentioned at the top of the uh, segment, you know, Sundance venues are kind of all over the place. And this Yarrow Theater, which is now apparently the Park Ave Theater, is literally inside a Doubletree Hotel. It seems like all of these places are sort of being consolidated, though, which is kind of nice because... The Yarrow, this new Ray Theater, and the Holiday Village Theaters, and Prospector are all really close to each other, which is nice. Because As opposed to the long trip easier. out to the multiplex? Yeah. The Redstone is hard to get to. Anyways, now we're going to talk about the opening night film for Sundance. And while Sundance generally doesn't hype up their opening night film in the same way that other festivals like Cannes or New York Film Festival do, there are big premieres happening all week long. So instead, embracing the political nature of their festival, they opt to select a timely documentary as their Thursday night opener. They use their biggest theater, the 550-person capacity, The Mark, to host the screening. Last year, it was in Inconvenient Truth 2, at a time when our focus on a greener future seemed to be in jeopardy. Unfortunately, it still does. This year, it's Lauren Greenfield's Generation Wealth, a doc that pulls the curtain back on our nation's obsession with materialism and image-obsessed culture. It follows the increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots in a world that's been bogged down in a global boom-or-bust economy. 
The doc captures the corrupted American dream and the human costs of late-stage capitalism, narcissism, and greed. Another selection that seems pretty on point. Amazon Studios already owns the film and will be releasing the doc in theaters for all on July 20th. So obviously this is one of many films. Um, Eric, as your first Sundance, what are you most looking forward to covering? My two most anticipated films of the festival, uh, the first being in alphabetical order, Lizzie, which is a historical thriller about the Lizzie Borden murders starring Kristen Stewart and in the title role, Chloe Sevigny. Sign me up. As a true crime and unsolved mysteries obsessive, I've long been interested in the case of the prolific Massachusetts woman who, one summer morning at the age of 32, axed her father and stepmother to death in their beautiful Fall River home. What caused her to do it, and why was she acquitted of the crime? Well, the film promises to reveal what could have happened, citing the sinister motive as being something perhaps a little more passion-based. If you like this kind of thing, Care to go halves with me on an evening in the official Borden home bed and breakfast? It's a little expensive, but it does exist. After shooting Ana Asensio's Most Beautiful Island on Super 16, cinematographer Noah Greenberg now lenses another film featuring a female lead searching for her place in this world. Another selection of mine that I'm looking very much forward to is Ronaldo Marcus Green's Monsters and Men in the U.S. Dramatic Competition. Over the past several years, Green has worked tirelessly to bring low-key, high-stakes stories to the forefront of American independent cinema. With Monsters and Men, he's finally ready to go feature-length. I interviewed Green three years ago on the occasion of his short film, Stop, premiering at Sundance in 2015. The story of a young boy who is racially profiled and stopped and frisked by the NYPD, Stop was both a film of the moment and an unexpected forecast of the avalanche of police brutality cases to follow in its wake. Monsters and Men looks to explore this issue even deeper, as it follows a young man who records a violent altercation between a white police officer and street hustler that concludes in murder. Taking place in my current home of Bedside, Brooklyn, the film stars Anthony Ramos, who, if you're a Hamilton obsessive like I am, only furthers the film's case as a must-see. While we're learning about you, Eric, you get a bit of a history buff here between Lizzie Borden and the Hamilton thing. You're, you're right. That Those uh, centuries were my kind of go-to, I guess. And I use art to learn more about them. That's beautiful. I would also add to this for the Lizzie Borden thing. I think living in Massachusetts is enough to drive anyone to murder. Hey, my name is Liz, and I lived in Massachusetts for five years, so watch out, you, fellas. did you kill anyone? Watch the fuck out, fellas. <laughs> So what about you, John? Well, uh, the first movie on my list is a movie called Piercing. Uh, that's I think that's probably my most anticipated because I have sort of a personal history with uh, the team behind it. At my first Sundance back in 2016, Micah Van Hove asked if I'd like a ticket to see a midnight movie he wouldn't be able to make because he was going to like some sort of party or something, and I was too scared to do that. On a whim, I accepted That movie was The Eyes of My Mother, and not only did it end up as my favorite of the festival, it set the course for how I would approach any festival-going experiences in the future. It inspired me to seek out these weird, underhyped movies that stretch past the label of indie. As the credits rolled down the screen, I noticed that the writer-director, Nick Pesh, was actually a college acquaintance of mine. This, in turn, gave me the courage to set up my first-ever interview as a journalist. Needless to say, I'm excited to see this follow-up. It's a twisted love story called Piercing. It's a psychological thriller starring Christopher Abbott and Maya Wyszkowska, based on Ryu Murakami's 1994 novel of the same name, about a family man who lies to his wife and daughter about a business trip, instead opting to check into a hotel with the intentions of killing a random prostitute. 
Only two years removed from his debut with the eyes of my mother, Pesh's future looks huge. He was recently tapped by Sam Raimi to reboot the Grudge franchise. And the next movie I'm looking forward to seeing is yet another midnight movie. This one is called Mandy. Why am I excited to see it? Well, mostly because Nick Cage is about to kick some ass. It's set in an alternate 1983 where Cage plays Red Miller, which is a pretty badass name, a broken and haunted man who hunts the unhinged religious sect that slaughtered the love of his life. I have high hopes that this film is going to be self-aware enough to deliver on the potential of its star and plot, and if the press photo, which features Cage smeared in blood a la a more psychotic Rambo, is any indication, it's going to hit it right on the mark. Boy, both of those films sound like lighthearted good-time romps. Well, you know... Midnight movies are such a fun category, and like like I was saying, if they're self-aware enough to realize that they are midnight movies, they're just going to buy into that genre, and they're going to fucking... Go for it. Go for it. Guts um, to the wall. Yeah, and it's like movies like these that are the reason I generally stick to the next in midnight sections, because you know what you're in for, and that's the completely unexpected, you know? That's the perfect segue to my anticipated because I think it's, you know, it's tempting to sort of like get blinded by these big star names that are going to be there and choose the like really widely anticipated titles, which I'm also excited to see. But I really love to look particularly at the next section because, you know, Midnight isn't usually my flavor. But the next section, like it features these bold and forward thinking uh you know, up and coming filmmakers, which is always exciting and and a reason to go to festivals. Um, This one in particular, the first one I'm choosing is called Skate Kitchen. It's by Crystal Moselle. And I grew up skateboarding with all dudes, which who were wonderful guys, but still it was like me and dudes, which gee, I guess my life has not changed that much. Hi, everyone. Anyway, I am so excited about this movie because it's about a girl skater gang. And, like, that kind of thing could go super wrong, especially if it's, like, a sort of older male director with this, like, weird fantasy about a girl skate gang. But it's a young female director, and it's based on a real all-girl skate gang here in the Lower East Side. And Crystal Mazel, she actually was a documentarian. She made this documentary, The Wolf Pack, which won the U.S. Doc Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in 2015. And even though this film, Skate Kitchen, is a narrative, she used her sort of like doc skills to embed with the skate gang, do the research, really like make an authentic movie. And I think that in particular is going to make it kind of like an interesting entry into this pool of like doc fiction hybrid films. I'm just super excited about it. The second one on my list is actually in the U.S. Dramatic Competition, but it feels like it could be a next selection. It's called Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley. And a lot of us, I'm sure you've heard, John and I both have roots in the Bay Area. And my own years there were like steeped in music, particularly this kind of really interesting Bay Area underground hip hop scene. And there was a band in that scene called The Coup. And now that band's frontman, Boots Riley, has turned his talents to filmmaking. You you really do seem like a hip hop kind of person, I have to say. An, really? under, an underground hip hop kind funny. of person. Okay. I mean, West Coast hip hop. Not really East Coast. I guess so. Let's be clear on this. Conscious hip hop. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. I always say I'm half hippie, half hip hop. Half hippie, half hip hop. Half hippie with a little punk uh, upbringing thrown in. Anyway, point is, I'm into music, um, as I think (laughs) we all are here. And I don't like. Is that on your Tinder profile? Listen, we'll talk about that later. 
I think that good musicians tend to make good filmmakers because like they usually understand rhythm and storytelling and how to entice an audience. So if a musician that I like makes a film like is the case with Boots Riley and Sorry to Bother You, I'm, I get super excited. In this case, I have to also mention like we've talked about several of the SF film rain in filmmaking grants on the show and this film is a recipient of those grants and like people and films who have been through those programs tend to be really exciting like Beasts of the Southern Wild is a product of that program so all of this points to this being a good film it's a dark comedy it features Lakeith Stanfeld who played the 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 guy in Get Out who was the other black guy if you've seen it you know what I'm talking about I mean the guy who said Get Out the guy who says get out. He's also amazing on Atlanta, and he was on my flight to Sundance last year. No way. And he's the coolest person I've ever seen in person. Oh, he seems like he'd be really cool. Yeah. Anyway, in this, he, it's a funny character. He plays, this is from the description in the the um, program. He plays a 30-something black telemarketer with self-esteem issues who discovers a magical selling power living inside of him. So, like, all awesome. of this just feels, like, rife with possibility for, like, satire, basically. And Army Hammer, who's, like, the man of the moment um, from Call Me By Your Name, is also in it. I think it's going to be really cool. Now, in addition, of course, to our straight-up, you know, f- um, film coverage, we do lots of other types of coverage at the festival. And I'm curious also what you guys are looking forward to in addition, like, other things you're covering or doing at the fest. Well, for me, there is a panel called The New York Times on race, sex, and power. Who controls the story? Uh, If you're a big fan of the New York Times nonfiction short-form OpDoc series, uh, like I am, then you should probably check this out. It'll be moderated by OpDoc's executive producer, Kathleen Lingo, and it's going to be taking place on Monday, January 22nd, where they will welcome New York Times reporter Jody Cantor, who broke the Harvey Weinstein story, New York Times opinion columnist Charles Blow, and several Sundance filmmakers to discuss what the future holds for media and society as more women and people of color step up to both tell their own stories and take the reins of distribution. Uh, The Sundance filmmakers participating on the panel haven't been announced publicly just yet, but this definitely feels like a conversation that's going to be quite buzzy and lively, and it's on my list of non-film screening events to check out. Uh, Well, I I didn't see that this was on the dock, but I will say that um, I'm probably most excited about uh, interviewing Nick Cage. And, Holy uh, shit! You have a what? Nick Cage interview? Yeah. Well, I just told How you, have you that. Not told us that till now. That movie that I just was talking about, Mandy, he's in. And yeah, so, but we don't always feature actors. Whoa. Yeah. Well, that's the hope. I mean, like the publicist said that I'd be able to do it. I'm not sure if it's going to be able to be a podcast yet, but it'd be pretty cool to get his voice on there. And then uh, the other thing that I'm looking forward to, I usually don't go to parties. I guess South by Southwest last year was the first time that I really went out to parties because I'm not really a huge networker and we're working so hard that it's like I see a lot of midnight movies when which is when the party hap- parties usually happen and like it's hard to have enough energy for it. You got to wake up at seven the next morning to go see movies and it's just not, it's not really why I'm there. But uh, Oscilloscope is having their tenth yeah anniversary ten year anniversary party, uh, which is awesome and it sounds. Really fun. Oscilloscope is the distribution company uh, that MCA started back in the day. And uh, I'm excited to see what this house party has in store for us. It needs to be, like, themed. Like, we have, like, a Keddy as the bartender. We need to have, um, oh, God. Now I'm thinking of Oscilloscope titles. 
the road movie is coming out, so we could have like angry Russians kind of like driving into the house party and things of that nature. Yeah, It'd I be think cool th- if we had one of the Beastie Boys DJing. Yeah. I'm wearing my Adam Horowitz branded Planned Parenthood uh, <laughs> donated sneakers right now. They yeah. released after Tiller, too, so it oh could all God, go see? into. It could all work out. Maybe that'll be our group party. That'd be fun. The one we all go to and pretend we're as cool as John. Huh? <laughs> um. I am also excited about everything you guys talked about, actually. Plus, for me, well, I have two really exciting podcast interviews lined up. One is uh, with Reed Morano, who we talked about so much on the podcast this past year. She shot the first episode of The Handmaid's Tale, and this is her second feature, which she also helped to shoot. And then I'm also having a DP roundtable, which we do. We try to do it at every festival, but in this case, it's the first time. It's all female. What? The amazing thing is the three women I'm having on between them have seven projects at the festival. So it's impressive. Also, on a side note, Idris Elba is going to be there with his feature film directorial debut, Yardy. And Oakley's covering it. I'm not. But I would really look forward to just, you know, running into my celebrity exception, Idris Elba. Just sitting in the essence, like just being near. Please. Although, hi. I have to say, it can be disappointing. I met Michael B. Jordan at South by Southwest a few years ago, and I was also equally as excited, and then he was so not interesting. Yeah, but this is Idris Elba. No, like, I, yeah. I think we can reasonably assume. Please, even if he says hello in that accent, I'm going to melt me yeah. some snow. Like, I'll, I'll meet you at the Sports Authority in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> We could dip in and out. What? <laughs> oh my God. Keeps coming back. <laughs> keeps recurring. Do your boyfriend listen to this show? <laughs> Not enough. Or do your parents? I don't. They've stopped, I think. Yeah. Sorry, it's Mom. Rain. All right. Also, I don't want to perv shame. Be pervy. <laughs> Thank you. There's nothing pervy. It's just. Oh, anyway, I'm very blushing right now. Okay. And before we move into gear news, a fun fact. Fun fact. Thanks, Charles. So Saudi Arabia, you may have heard, has been going through some big cultural shifts recently. And one that is relevant to us is that they've lifted their 35-year cinema ban nationwide. So movie theaters will be legalized again and some entertainment from the West will be shown. The first public screenings since the 80s were held last week and a double feature of, guess what, everyone? Captain Underpants in the Emoji Movie. Whoa. You ruin everything, John. Well, you ask us, guess what? Every time. I was asking the audience. (laughs) I should have left it blank. Anyway, yes. Can you hear the audience? You can hear the people listening to it on their car They're guessing. They're shouting. They're tweeting. Oh, Um, yeah. John, you're right. (laughs) The two first films shown in Saudi Arabia publicly in 35 years were Captain Underpants and the Emoji Movie. So I guess Saudi Arabia is trying to convince its people that they were better off without movies in the first place. Hey, Captain Underpants <laughs> was a fucking great movie. I saw it on the plane on the way home, and it is delightful. It oh, is really right. good. Also, wasn't Patrick Stewart in the Emoji Movie? Yeah. So that's something. All right, fine. Good job, Saudi Arabia. I don't know the emoji. No, Captain Underpants maybe, but the Emoji Movie. I hear it was terrible. I have. I have. It's. It's on my list. I'm getting there. All it's right. not on my list. I'm never going to see like, it. Like, it might not be as bad as, like, Trolls 2. That'll be screening in 50 years in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right, Charles, what do you got for us in gear news? All right, so gear news. Nobody shouts gear news like we shout fun facts. Oh, it needs its own thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out after Sundance. Okay, so first up, we're big fans of original celluloid film around here, and uh, I got to shoot a lot of Super 8 back in the day on this, you know, mostly on a Canon 1014 that I borrowed from my buddy Bruce. Hey, Bruce. Um <laughs> There hasn't been a modern Super 8 camera in ages. Like the Canon 1014 is still kind of the newest and greatest from the 80s. So we were all really excited two years ago when Kodak announced not only are they getting back in the Super 8 game with a service where you can buy the film and development and scanning all in combo, but they were also coming out with a new camera designed by Yves Behar, and it would do audio recording and have a wider gate and a digital viewfinder, and it was going to be like, I don't know, 400 to $750, they said. And, you know, we're savvy, so we know like 400 to 750 probably means like 950 but like 400 to $750. Um, so, huge news. This is going to be great. Well, they finally announced their pricing, and it's $2,500. Womp womp. Yeah, it's... It's like, all right, so 750 is like a little high for a thing that you're probably not going to use every day. But like at 750, if you're going to use it like three or four times a year and and you really want it, you can like talk yourself into it. But like for $2,500, that better like earn you money and be rentable to other people. And you better like it, it just seems like a totally different price point. And a really high one for a Super 8 millimeter camera in this day and age. So, like, we totally get that pricing is a matter of, like, how much something costs to make. And you have to make back R&D costs. But also, pricing is kind of about, like, what the market will bear. And it'll be really interesting, I think, to see if the market will bear $2,500 for a Super 8 camera. Especially because, like, the 1014, you can get one for, like, $200 on eBay. Uh, Thanks again, Bruce. Up next is the Liebox which is a new 4K action camera that comes with interchangeable lenses. So, like, some people have tried to do interchangeable lenses on a GoPro, like Joe Dunton had a system out for a while, but they were never mass-produced, and there was never really, like, a common system for doing it. And with Liebox, the opportunity to, like, mass-produce something where you can change your field of view with interchangeable lenses could really help them stand out in, like, what's a very crowded action camera space. Uh, Liebox has... Optional camera attachments for, like, stereo 3D, immersive, variable focal length. They can even do some macro stuff. There's a flip-out screen to make operating easier, especially for selfies. The fixed lens in most action cameras is, like, pretty much the main pain point. Like, everything else about GoPro and Yi and Sony, like, they're all great. Like, they're pretty good now. But the, the fixed field of view has been the frustration. So this could really shake that market up. It kind of makes you wonder what could have happened if GoPro had done this instead of focusing on their failed drone division. I can't believe in 10 years of GoPro they never sorted out interchangeable lenses. I know, right? They made it fly and crash, but they (laughs) didn't bother fixing the lens thing. You know, it's it's, incremental changes don't seem as exciting to designers as like massive leaps forward. And this is like an incremental change, but it's an exciting one. Uh, last up, so this tool is audio only for now, but we think it'll have some applications in video later. It's a tool called Descript. It's so cool that even though it's audio only, we had to talk about it. Descript is a standalone a- application for editing audio content. So, like, you record an audio clip, you bring it into Descript, and they use Google Talk to automatically transcribe it. 
Then you've got this little view that's like an your audio waveform at the bottom and your script up top, and they stay in sync with each other. So, like, there are a lot of tools out there that automatically transcribe using, like, IBM and stuff like that. But the cool feature with Descript is that if you edit the text up above, it edits your audio. So, like, I'm recording this podcast right now, and, like, that classic Kids in the Hall sketch, I accidentally thank Hitler, and the podcast editor wants to take it out. Once it's transcribed, they can just highlight the point where I thank Hitler and hit delete, and it cuts it out of the audio, too. So it's like linked in both directions. Dude, John, can you believe that? I don't know. Not I, really. It sounds too good to be true, but Charles, you said you've been playing with yeah, it. Yeah, I played right? with it for like an hour last night, and it totally works. And then when you're done doing the like content edit, you send it over to Audition or whatever to do your fine tune, like if you want to cut out in the middle of a word or something. Um, it's pretty cool. It's going to be mostly for editing podcasts, but once they add a video feature, which come on, let's be real, they will. You'll be able to bring in video files and do it. It's going to be a really fascinating tool when you're dealing with a lot of footage. Like if you're working on a documentary and you want to be able to do like a string out and get down to just all of the parts that are relevant to your thing by deleting sections of the transcript. When you want to – or even if you're working on a narrative and you want to do a string out where you cut together every time an actor says one line, doing that with cut and paste in a text editor is just faster than doing it in Premiere. And it's going to be really interesting to see the application for that. I also kind of think their pricing model is cool. So check out the article for more. Thanks, Charles. So we also have an Ask No Film School question for you. Did this come from the boards? From the boards. So on our nofilmschool.com boards, Alex Lamb asked, can you guys recommend some of the best slash useful slash your favorite filmmaking apps out there for basically any level of production? So, holy cow, Alex, you're right. We never talk about apps, but they're like a big part of filmmaking. So uh, we should talk about them. First off, it is pricey, but it's totally worth it. Artemis from Chemical Wedding. Artemis is a viewfinder application that gives you the ability to be on set and see what field of view you're going to get out of different lenses with a lot of precision. But it's even better than that. So it helps you create photo boards. You can create documents with all of your notes from locations. It remembers things like all of the gyroscopic information from the camera. So were you tilted up? Were you tilted down? Where was the camera with uh, GPS codes? All sorts of stuff like that that's really helpful when you're in a prep session. So at this point, Artemis is like one of the most commonly used tools on any scout. Next up, you should look at Cinemeter 2. It's a not a total replacement for a dedicated external color and light meter, but they've done a whole lot of work with it. It's developed by a whole lot of interesting people, and it's a pretty useful tool for getting you some like basic exposure and color info. Um, as far as we can tell, I don't shoot a lot of video on my phone, but when I do, I use Filmic Pro, and it seems to be really popular with other filmmakers. It gives you access to a whole lot more fine-tuned control in your video application than you get if you just open the random photo app and switch over to video. So if you want to be able to lock exposure to a certain part of a scene so that it's not constantly drifting in and out and stuff like that, Filmic Pro gives you that. And then last but not least, it's not technically just a filmmaker app, but it's an app that's so great we got to mention it. It's called Sunseeker. Before smartphones and iPads, if you wanted to be able to predict, like, where the sun was going to be, you had to have, like, a Sunto compass and you had to have a GPS device and a laptop and use this app. And, uh, like, it was complicated. But sometimes you want to know, like, oh, in three months when I come back, like, what time's the sun going to crest over that hill? 
Sunseeker gives you this awesome 3D view where you hold it up and it shows you exactly where the sun will be. It's such an amazing scouting tool. There's screen caps of it taken pretty much every day that I scout anything, day exterior, or even if there's a window and I want to see if the sun's going to come in the window. Sunseeker rules. So uh, those are the apps we use most often. Are there apps you guys are using that I didn't get to? I was going to say we have like literally dozens of articles on the site about various apps and what they're useful for. And so I definitely recommend that anybody do a search. You can even just search apps at No Film School. Oh, yeah, because we tag apps. Yeah. And um, once you do the search, click on one of the tags that says apps and it'll quickly line up everything for you app wise. And maybe I'll answer a part two to this question sometime that just focuses on like like Charles talked about production apps. But they're like from sort of like a shooter perspective. But there are so many apps from a producer perspective oh, for yeah. pre-pro, for organization, for calendaring, for for scheduling things out, for getting um, signatures on your uh, location releases and that kind of thing. So, I mean, there's a zillion. And uh, maybe I'll try to weed through some of those for you in a future app. The app. The app app. The app app. All right. Thanks so much, Charles. And we've talked a lot about movies on this episode, but there are some you can actually see right now instead of having to wait till they come out months after Sundance. So the first one coming to VOD on January 23rd is Flesh and Blood. Uh, The only thing that's fabricated in Mark Webber's documentary fiction hybrid Flesh and Blood is its inciting incident. Webber, who plays himself, did not in reality serve prison time. The film opens as he's released into the inner city Philadelphia streets, where he grew up impoverished and intermittently homeless, raised by his single mother, Sherry Hunkala, now an activist and Green Party politician. Though Weber has resolved to return to life as a free man with practiced grace and optimism, the world around him has changed little. It's still plagued by the temptations and injustices that contributed to Weber's imprisonment in the first place. In the film, everyone plays a version of themselves in this unconventional family story, which weaves together scenes of straight verite, such as when Weber meets his heroin-addicted father for just the second time in 30 years, and loosely scripted scenes from everyday living. Emily Booter, RIP, interviewed Weber about his experience in making this doc fiction hybrid, and you can read that article for Mark Weber's reality cinema, Lack of Resources is Its Strength on NoFilmSchool.com. And coming to Netflix on January 26th is A Futile and Stupid Gesture. Here's a movie that's not coming out until next Friday, but since it's premiering at Sundance and Netflix on the same weekend, you can have your own little slice of Utah right at home in Iowa or wherever you're listening to this episode from. It's actually probably my most anticipated movie at Sundance, but unfortunately, it won't be screening until we all leave next week. The film is a biopic about the brilliant and troubled Doug Kenny, who basically oversaw the creation of the incredibly successful National Lampoon Empire in the 1970s and 80s. Kenny is played by Will Forte, who is one of my personal favorite comic actors, while Emmy Rossum, Donald Gleason, and Seth Green also star, and in an ironic turn of events, Joel McHale will portray his former Community co-star, Chevy Chase. This is one story I'm really interested in learning more about. Coming to theaters this week is a movie called Small Town Crime on January 19th. I saw this film at South by Southwest last year, and I really enjoyed myself at the screening. The neo-noir is co-directed by brothers Ian and Esham Nelms and stars Octavia Spencer and the always fantastic John Hawks as an alcoholic ex-cop who finds the dead body of a teenage girl and takes it upon himself to find her killer. I actually sat down with pretty much the entire team for an interview a couple of days after seeing the film. 
The podcast episode is called Divide and Conquer, Why You Should Be Working with a Co-Director, and features both the directing brothers, the DP, Johnny Durango, and the composer, Chris Westlake. The brothers started out as DIY as you can possibly get, shooting a feature-length film essentially in their backyard, with their photographer dad providing all the gaffing and lighting for the project. And last, we have The Final Year. Uh, This political documentary had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival and is opening theatrically and on demand this Friday, January 19th. That's 364 days after the inauguration of our current president's swearing into office. And when I say swearing in, that pun is most certainly intended. Um, For the documentary, director Greg Barker had gained unprecedented access to the Obama administration's foreign policy team's final year in the White House, which was in 2016, as they work against the clock and race around the world to really just, you know, better America's relations with other countries uh, before they are finished with their term. Uh, The film's context is obviously much different now than when it was filmed. Like much of the country, Obama's team expected and made clear in the film that a Democrat would lead the White House after Obama exits. This is not a spoiler. That didn't wind up happening. Uh, Every line of hope then that the administration declares kind of pierces more like a dagger now than a line of encouragement uh, due to how the election results uh, did turn out in 2016. I interviewed Greg Barker last week, which will be up on the site this Friday. uh, And Greg told me that I've never had a film where it plays on multiple levels simultaneously. You have the narrative of the film on screen and then the narrative within our minds, which is constantly counterposing what we're watching with what we're experiencing every day. I find that when I watch the film, different scenes have different meanings based on what's going on in the news that day because we're in such an insane period of time. Uh, Definitely powerful documentary. People are kind of crying behind me when I I saw it. Uh, Just as there's a scene where everyone's kind of gathered on election night to see the results, and you know what's coming, but they don't. So it's a weird kind of foreshadowing watching a documentary like this now. Um, but in, if we watch it again in 10 years, maybe things get back on the right track, and it's inspiring. It's not it's not a horror movie or pessimistic in any way. Fascinating. Thanks, Eric. And now on to some upcoming deadlines for grants and other opportunities. The TFI, Tribeca Film Institute, and ESPN short documentary program has a deadline on January 28th. If you have an idea for a short doc that highlights an athlete or athletic initiative that benefits a larger community, this grant could definitely be something to look into. You could get up to 20K towards the production or post-production of your film. And the Nickelodeon Writing Program has a deadline on January 31st. They now have introduced an additional preschool track. This writing program gives you a salary position for a year as you get hands-on experience writing specs and pitching stories. So while in the program, writers hone their skills, build a professional network, and gain real-world experience in writers' rooms for Nickelodeon's critically acclaimed live-action and animated shows. This track, the general track, has a 12-month commitment. Now, the preschool track offers the same talent development opportunities with a focus on Nick Jr. content. The preschool track is a six-month commitment. Those are both such cool opportunities for these kind of specific niches. We have one more deadline on January 31st. It's a fun one to say. It's Wicker World's Film and TV Funding Award, which grants 80,000 pounds, British pounds, to an emerging filmmaker with the most promising pitch for an authored documentary. The project must fulfill the core criteria of the foundation and be completed for screening within a year. It enables a first-time feature-length director to realize an original and innovative story that they are in the unique position to tell. And then a second award of 15,000 British pounds goes to a runner-up. The money will be paid in installments to the director's film company or to a nominated fiscal sponsor. 
And now moving on to festival deadlines, the Maryland International Film Festival has a deadline on January 20th. This takes place in Hagerstown, Maryland from April 27th to the 28th in 2018. This is the late deadline. It's a Movie Maker Magazine Top 50 film festival. And last year, one filmmaker walked away from the festival with a million-dollar investment deal. So it looks like while the fest doesn't have any cash prizes of its own, they have attendees with deep pockets and deals are in play. And I shot my short in Maryland, so it's got a nice little community down there. The Julian Dubuque International Film Festival has a deadline on January 25th. This film festival takes place in Dubuque, Iowa from April 26th to the 29th, 2018, and this is the extended deadline. They award over $40,000 in cash and benefits, including a $10,000 Best of the Fest award. They also pay for the travel and accommodations for the top three nominees of each category. It is also one of Movie Maker Magazine's Best 50. And the Newport Beach Film Festival has a deadline on January 26th. This is the late deadline. It takes place in Newport Beach, California from April 26th to May 3rd, 2018. It screens a diverse showcase of more than 300 films each year to over 54,000 attendees. It's a top 100 reviewed film festival on Film Freeway, and it's on that 50 list. It has a ton of prizes. Great. And now for weekly words of wisdom, which in my mind has like a big echo every time I say it. Um, mine this week, we put up a really interesting interview um, earlier this week by a new No Film School writer, Diana Drum, and it's an interview with Ziad Dueri about his film The Insult, which represents Lebanon on the shortlist for Best Foreign Language Film at the upcoming Academy Awards. Fun fact! Before directing, Dueri was behind the camera for the likes of Quentin Tarantino. He was first AC on Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. So The Insult is a politically charged and controversial film, so Diana asked the filmmaker for advice for other filmmakers tackling difficult subjects, and here's what he said, quote, The only advice I give filmmakers or screenwriters is to think of your story, not of the subject you're talking about. Think of how to build your story, how to build your characters. Don't start thinking about how people are going to react, who's going to react. Is it controversial or not controversial? If you start thinking in terms of too controversial or not, you're fucking yourself up because people are not going to see controversy. A spectator is not going to see a cause. A spectator is not going to see a revolution. They are going to see a story told in images. You should only concentrate on storytelling. That's it. His ultimate point was that you can let spectators extract social and political messages on their own. Probably good advice no matter what point you're hoping to drive home with your film, political or not. And since we've talked a lot about Sundance this episode, I thought I'd sprinkle in one more piece of motherly yet very important advice from Loretta Provost in an article she wrote for us this week entitled Surviving Sundance, Practical Tips. She says, take care of yourself. There will be lots of humans and handshaking and stressed immune systems. Do you want to prioritize sleep so you can go the distance? Many years, a stomach bug makes the rounds. Maybe eat with your left hand and wash your hands often. Stock up on some vitamin C or other immune boosters when you do your grocery run. So I have yet to go to a Sundance where I haven't come back sick. And so my weekly words of wisdom are, if you're going to Sundance, do this so I don't get sick. Please. It's famously called flu dance as well because it's... In January, in the mountains, and it's cold, and people aren't sleeping and drinking a lot. I like sneeze dance. Hachoo! Um, so if you're going to be there, please check out Loretta's article, and also please seek us out. Uh, we'll be on the ground, and we love to meet you and hear from you. And if all goes well, next Monday's podcast will be our first Sundance interview episode, 
and next Thursday's Indie Film Weekly will be our full-blown, from-the-ground, comprehensive Sundance coverage. So until then, please send us good travel vibes, and you can read everything we talked about on this episode, get all the links to those great grant opportunities and festival deadlines on the podcast post and plenty of other posts at nofilmschool.com. You can subscribe to this podcast and rate us on iTunes or any of the other podcasting apps you use. And we love it when you stay in touch, especially when you're sweet, like some of you have been recently on Twitter, bucking the trend. Thank you. I am at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Um, and wait, that's what the, that, someone brought up a good point, which I have no H in my name. It's just J-O-N. So it's Jim underscore J-O-N underscore Jim. J-O-N. Yeah. Um, Eric is, I think, at Eric Lures. Charles is at Charles Hain. And we are all at No Film School. See ya in the mountains. 